the Israel lobby has found itself powerless to actually stop the momentum of BDS on the grassroots level. Our laughter startled their grimaces. We came with our joy, our heartache, our pain. We shoved through checkpoints with our passports, our music, our customs, our beliefs, our faith, our protest, our song, our artists, our activists, our dreams. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. In one moment, we'll go to Washington, D.C. to talk with Josh Rubner about the Israel Anti-Boycott Act. And we'll also speak with poet and activist Aja Monet a little bit later on. But first, we go to Jerusalem, where we're joined by our contributor, Jalal al for some breaking news. Jalal, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks can for you, having me, Nora. Can you tell us what happened today at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound after two weeks of civil disobedience by thousands of Palestinians in protest over Israel's uh, methods of control? Tell us what happened. Okay. Basically, today, um, like last night, since the early hours this morning, uh, the barriers that were installed along with the metal uh, detector gates and Everything else that was added, all the bridges and the cameras that were newly installed at the gates, they were all removed since early hours just this morning. And so there was a decision that people will go back to pray in Al-Aqsa after noon, so in the Asr prayers at four, uh, half 4 p.m. And so people were called uh, for, for that, and people were massing in the thousands at the gates of Al-Aqsa to enter by 4.30 Everyone was like depending on the fact that this will mean once they go in that uh, all the measures taken after the 14th of July, all the new uh, Israeli measures at the Aqsa would have been removed. The only thing that did not happen was the opening of Al Hatta Gate, which uh, I think remission gate, um, sort of the gates next to Lions Gate, Abel Asbat. So it wasn't open by the time people were meant to be going in, and so people refused to just go in. Um, which led to certain negotiations between some imams and some other like higher-ranking officials from PA in Jerusalem and Israeli police. Uh, I'm not sure what actually came out, but all I know that people suddenly, after the freedom to go in, they went into Al-Aqsa towards Al-Hutta Gate instead of to pray to Al-Aqsa. And so they started Al-Hutta Gate from both sides. And they were there until um, the Israeli police stationed there all just basically um, retreated from the scene and everyone was entering through Hatta Gate. And the scene after that was just thousands upon thousands just entering Al-Aqsa and just walking through the massive MTRs. And it was just filled up with a sea of people within minutes. Flags, passing flags were raised on Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, on the walls for the first time in ages, the number was huge. It was more than any Friday prayers or Eid prayers that I would have seen in the past in, in Jerusalem. So it just felt like a victory. Everyone was chanting, everyone was chanting for Al-Aqsa, for Palestine. It, it felt really, really amazing. But as soon as people like filled up the, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, we heard um, sound bombs and, and like some things happening in the very back at the Hatta gate. And so the, the older people were asking people to just take on and say where they are. 
like all the younger Shabab, all the younger youth were just running back to the to check what happened to make sure that the Israelis haven't closed again or they've not put any new barriers. Um, and clashes were just breaking at that point because uh, Israeli soldiers stopped people from go- coming in through Hatta Gate. Um, and that was the, the trigger. People, Israeli soldiers basically threw uh, stun grenades and gas at people coming through Hatta Gate to stop the thousands coming in. Um, and just clashes broke out. It was chaotic at the time. And that's basically when I, I managed to leave Al-Aqsa compound. So I'm not sure exactly what happened after. But that was the scene I witnessed today. Uh, Jalal, uh, thank you for that. And and the Palestinian Red Crescent Society says that at least 95 Palestinians have been injured by Israeli forces in the hours after, uh, as you as you reported, Palestinians returned to the Al-Aqsa Mosque mm-hmm. compound. Uh, this is in addition to the 1,100 Palestinians injured in East Jerusalem and elsewhere in the occupied West Bank over the last two weeks. Can you talk about uh, the current situation now uh, as much as you can? Um, I have only seen the news on TV just uh, not so long ago, uh, maybe an hour ago. Um, basically, what I've seen was people are still trapped inside Al-Aqsa Mosque. The gates are shut again. There's no people are trapped inside, many people are trapped outside. Um, people are just separated from each other, so it's, it's quite chaotic what's going on now. There's like, clashes going on. I really can't say uh, anymore. I'm not exactly... Sure, because I've been off, uh, my phone was off and everything. I was cut off like three hours in the past, so I can't be sure to say exactly what's going on at the moment. Jalal, from your experience, um, what uh, what can you predict uh, will, will happen in the next 24, 48 hours? Um, tomorrow, of course, is Friday. Do you know if uh, people are planning on, on re-entering uh, the compound for Friday prayers? Certainly. Um, I'm not sure if there's any, any new decisions made regarding any Israeli measures at the moment, but I, I know that uh, it was it's, it's a very grassroots-led movement. The, 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 the voices that refused to enter Al-Aqsa because Al-Hattage was shut, it wasn't any leadership or any like uh, main imams. It was like very much from the youth and uh, a very small minority of imams who still refused to enter Al-Aqsa because Al-Hatta gate was shut. So they had all the gates open, but they still refused. Those people are, are the majority of the crowd who are now mobilizing in Jerusalem. And those people are the ones who refuse any Israeli measure at Al-Aqsa. And so if Al-Hatta gate is shut down, uh, they will continue to protest, whether to pray at Hatta gate um, or just refuse to enter the compound at all. So I'm not really sure what tomorrow will be like. Tomorrow has people have called for like ma- huge numbers of people to attend, but um, I, I know for sure that people have not uh, have not given up and will still fight until every single new Israeli measure is completely removed from the scene. So they will not take half solutions or any. Uh, they will not accept anything new, basically. So. It's not the PA or, or it's not like the main muftis of Al-Aqsa who are, who are taking uh, action or, or having control over the crowds. It's people within the crowds themselves who just refuse um, all those new measures. And so they will protest anything new. If Al-Hatta gate is shut tonight, if any new gate is shut, if there's any new measures put back in place, the protest will continue whether outside or inside Al-Aqsa compound. All right, Jalal Abu Khattar, your most recent piece on the Electronic Intifada is something all of our listeners should read and reread uh, and share. It's called The Slow Killing of Jerusalem. 
Thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast, and please be safe, Jalal. Thank you, Nora. In Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Coming up later in the podcast, an interview with poet and activist Aja Monet. Stay tuned for that. But first, we go to Washington, D.C., where we're joined by Josh Rubner, policy director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. Back in April, Josh published a story on the Electronic Intifada about the Israel Anti-Boycott Act, introduced by U.S. Senator Ben Cardin in a bipartisan effort to pass legislation designed to suppress the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, or BDS, movement for Palestinian rights. Josh wrote that, quote, during the last congressional session, the Maryland Democrats succeeded in sneaking language into a must-pass trade bill, making it a principal negotiating objective of the United States to discourage politically motivated actions to boycott, divest from, or sanction Israel while negotiating trade deals. This discouragement of BDS, Josh Rubner wrote, extends to boycotts of products originating from settlements in what the bill euphemistically referred to as Israel-controlled territories. All of Israel's settlements in the occupied West Bank and Syria's Golan Heights are illegal under international law. The law could punish violators of the Israel Anti-Boycott Act with a minimum of $250,000 in civil penalties and a maximum criminal penalty of $1 million and 20 years imprisonment, as stipulated in the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. As U.S. lawmakers continued to sign on in support of the act since April, the ACLU warned that the law would punish individuals for no reason other than their political beliefs. After the ACLU's warning, Glenn Greenwald and Ryan Grimm over at The Intercept picked up the story and it gained some national attention. In the past few days, lawmakers seem to be re-examining their support for the bill. Senator Ben Cardin told The Intercept on Monday that he is open to amending the legislation to address concerns raised by the ACLU. Cardin said that the ACLU had misinterpreted his legislation, but if it needed to be clarified, he would take the steps to do so. The ACLU, for their part, has stood by their legal interpretation of the law. Josh Rubner, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada to help suss this out. Thanks so much for having me, Nora. So before we get into the details of this bill as it stands now, uh, you actually bumped into Senator Chuck Schumer and Senator Ben Cardin on Tuesday at the healthcare rally. Can you talk about the conversations you had with both Senate conversations? Uh, that's jumping the gun a little bit, but the talk you had with both senators about uh, the Israel Anti-Boycott Act. Sure, we ran into them between meetings on Capitol Hill, and I think Senator Schumer, for his and the Democrats' effort to kill the uh, Trump care, uh, anti-health care bill that would strip away health care from tens of millions of Americans. And I told Senator Schumer that there's another bill we need to kill as well. And he asked me, oh, yeah, what's that? And I said, S-720, the Israel Anti-Boycott Act, because it's an unconstitutional infringement on our First Amendment right to boycott Israel. And at that, he grew very testy, very angry. Uh, telling me that this is not the time or the place to discuss this. We have to keep our messaging focused on health care, at which point Senator Cardin, the lead sponsor of the bill, walked by, and I said, no, this is definitely the time we need to discuss this because your colleague from Maryland is trying to put us in prison for up to 20 years for our constitutionally protected right to boycott Israel. At that point, both senators walked away not wanting to engage on this issue, uh, which shows quite clearly that they're on the defensive about this bill because they've been called out by the ACLU and from publications from the left and the right uh, opposing 
the notion that you could be thrown in jail for expressing a political belief and engaging in politically protected uh, actions such as boycotts. And uh, many of the lawmakers who sponsored this bill uh, seem to have signed on to it without even reading it, which points out, of course, the knee-jerk, reflexive nature of politicians happy to sign whatever APAC puts in front of them. Uh, let's talk about this bill and APAC's involvement here. Lay out what you discovered uh, back in April and what changes have been made to it three, four months later. Well, this bill was the centerpiece of APAC's lobbying efforts when it came to Washington in March for its annual policy conference, and Senator Cardin's introduction of the bill was timed to coincide with this lobbying effort. So from the very outset, it's been very much tied in with APAC's lobbying agenda for the current congressional session. And uh, unfortunately, we, we tried to raise the alarm about this bill months ago and the gravity of it. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't until the ACLU letter came out that people started taking it with the seriousness um, that it deserves. But now that the alarm has been raised by the ACLU, everyone's up in arms uh, about this bill. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, you have the Intercept from the left, the Atlantic from the center, the National Review from the right wing of the political spectrum, all in opposition to this bill. And senators who are being confronted and representatives who are being confronted over their support for this bill are backtracking. Uh, what we've heard from our contacts on Capitol Hill is that because of these concerns raised by the ACLU, the likelihood of this bill going forward is very, very slim at this point. That's the voice of Josh Rubner at uh, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights in Washington, D.C. Josh, let's talk a little bit about the ACLU and, uh, and, and how it stood by its legal interpretation of the act. Um, the Daily Beast's legal affairs correspondent wrote earlier this week that the law is being misread uh, by the ACLU, by the Israel lobby groups, and by Palestinian rights advocates. Um, this is Jay Michelson of the Daily Beast. He said that all the law does is, quote, extend the 1977 law to UN boycotts as well as governmental ones. He says, does it really punish the exercise of constitutional rights? Not any more than the 1977 law does, and it's been in effect for 40 years. What do you make of this analysis? Well, I think it's disingenuous, and I think the fact that Jay Michelson did not at all refer to the actual penalties that are found in the bill is very telling about what his analysis is. The bill clearly specifies that you could land in jail for up to 20 years and be faced with up to a million-dollar fine if you further uh, international organization boycott of Israel. So the ACLU's interpretation of the bill, which we wholeheartedly agree with, is that let's say the UN Human Rights Council comes out with its database of Israeli settlement products, which this legislation is actually in response to. Let's say that you as an individual want to express solidarity with that database and say, I agree with the UN Human Rights Council that I'm not going to purchase any product from a company that's on this list because I don't agree to doing business with an Israeli settlement. If you post that to Facebook, according to the ACLU's analysis, that could be enough to criminalize you under this law. Let's talk about some of the pro-Israel propaganda around this bill, apart from the usual APAC motivations here. Um, Joshua Block, the president and CEO of the Israel Project, 
which is a well-funded Israel propaganda group, uh, wrote a nauseating op-ed in The Hill uh, saying that this bill is, quote, necessitated by the new and dramatic growth of international anti-Israel movements that are attempting to use the UN and EU as vehicles to promote economic boycotts against Israel. Uh, a few days ago, um, Yusuf Munayer, your, your colleague at the U.S. campaign, tweeted that J Street, the liberal Zionist lobby group, began circulating material to Congress suggesting BDS activity may not have First Amendment protection. What do you make of this uh, propaganda that's coming out of, of the, the hard the hard right wing uh, Israel project as well as uh, J Street? Why would the why would J Street be jumping in this pool? Well, to answer your first question about the Israel project, in some respects, I very much agree with Josh Block's analysis because the reason why we've seen this whole rash of anti-BDS legislation at the federal, at the state level proliferate over the last few years is because the Israel lobby has found itself powerless to actually stop the momentum of BDS on the grassroots level. And that's because Israel and its supporters cannot defend its policies toward Palestinians on its merits, so that when there are open debates and open votes on whether to engage in BDS, more often than not, the proponents of BDS win. So they've turned to the legislative sphere in an attempt to enact a very heavy-handed authoritarian crackdown on the BDS movement, which, as the ACLU has noted, is in direct violation of the First Amendment. Now, when it comes to J Street, they're obviously horribly confused over this bill because they've been messaging to Congress, as was mentioned by my colleague Yusuf, that this may or may not be in violation of the First Amendment. And today they are putting out different messaging, quoting the ACLU, that it is a direct violation of the First Amendment. It's pretty stunning to me how an organization that big and that well-funded uh, could be so, uh, so inconsistent in its messaging around this bill and not really understand the gravity uh, of the bill at play here and the fact that what it is doing, in essence, is criminalizing political speech absolutely in an uncontested way. And, you know, the BDS movement... Uh has been around for 12 years and J Street, that should have been ample time for J Street to figure out whether boycotts were a form of protected speech in this country. <laughs> uh, it's, it's stunning. Well, they, they do seem to be recognizing it now, but they are also putting out contradictory messaging that the BDS movement needs to be defeated. They just don't agree that the way to defeat it is through legislation. And in fact, J Street has played a seminal role in trying to defeat different BDS initiatives throughout the years uh, in churches, on campuses. Uh, it's an organization that's certainly hostile to the notion of Palestinian rights and respecting the Palestinian civil society call for BDS. And they're quite open uh, in their desire to try to quash the movement as well. Well, finally, Josh Rubner, where is this bill going? Uh, what do you see uh, are the next steps activists can and should take at this point to fight back, not just against this piece of legislation, but as you point out, all the rest of the anti-BDS laws currently being proposed or, or passed across uh, state and federal legislatures in the U.S.? The ACLU coming out in such 
strong opposition to this legislation. It was really an opportunity for Palestine solidarity activists to press this issue now hard with their members of Congress because those members of Congress, and especially Democratic members of Congress, who fancy themselves as being part of a resistance to Trump's authoritarianism, who have put themselves on as sponsors of this bill to jail people for expressing a political uh, viewpoint, they are on the defensive right now. So we have the August recess coming up when many members of Congress are going to be doing town halls, they're going to be meeting with their constituents. It's imperative for Palestine solidarity activists to do exactly what activists did with Senator Gillibrand from New York uh, last weekend in the Bronx when they confronted her publicly over her support for this bill and really put her on the defensive and forced her to publicly admit that she needed to reconsider her support for this bill. This is an excellent opportunity for people to do likewise all across the country. Josh Rubner, you're the policy director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. If people want to get in touch with uh, the U.S. Campaign, how can they do so? Yeah, please contact us from our website, uscpr.org, or give us a call at 202-332-0994. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you, Nora. Coming up, a conversation with poet and activist Aja Monet. Stay tuned. Walk on you when I can meet my friend without going through an Israeli checkpoint policy. Walk on you when I feel safe without the concern of any conspiracy. Walk on you defending my right not being victim of fake diplomacy. Watani's not being controlled by everyone in the name of democracy Many have sent for homeland but I tell a story that is different I speak a story of belligerence and hopes of potential difference I live in a world where I'm bound to move As I move with restriction although I'm free But according to the media, reflection, a kind of media That shows a killer, affection, a media that turns us into a nation Of hopelessness and objection that leaves me questioning Whether it's one by actual in Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. We're absolutely delighted to be joined today by award-winning poet, performer, educator, and activist Aja Monet. Monet is the author of a brand new book of poetry from Haymarket Press, My Mother Was a Freedom Fighter. Angela Davis says that Monet's poetry, quote, offers us textures of feeling and radical shifts of meaning that expand our capacity to envision and fight for new worlds. From Brooklyn, USA to Hebron-occupied Palestine, we take a feminist journey through rage and serenity, through violence and love, through ancient times and imagined figures. This stunning volume reminds us that conflict and contradiction can produce hope and that poetry can orient us toward a future we may not yet realize we want. Wow. With that, Ajamone, we're so pleased to have you with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. First off, tell us a little bit about your life and your organizing work uh, where you live in Little Haiti, Miami, Florida. Tell us about that community. And um, and I know you're not there right now, but what you see when you look out your window, if you could. Oh, um, what I see when I look out my window is typically lizards and trees and bamboo and... Um, Sometimes we'll get an occasional blue jay, and 
also, let me think, you know, it's, it's, it's the Caribbean vibe. A lot of the time it's very warm, um, very loving and very just, it's a different, it's definitely a different environment than when I, where I grew up. So I'm really grateful every time I get to look out the window and just see that the sun is shining or sometimes even that it's raining. But, um, yeah, it's, that's pretty much what I end up seeing when I look out my window. Um, and then you asked about the cultural organizing stuff. Yeah. Smoke signals. So my partner and I, we met, um, in Palestine on a delegation for the dream defenders where a bunch of artists and activists were invited to come and, and exchange and learn and, um, have, have a, have a representation or some sort of demonstration of solidarity and some of the same conflicts that are happening here in the States and over there in Palestine. And so, um, it was organized by Ahmed, uh, Abu Snaid and we, we were able to really, um, not just exchange only with Palestinians and, and local organizers on the ground, but as young black people from all over the, this, the, the country, we were, we were able to really just exchange with one another and, and share and break bread and really build with one another. And, and, and it helped to develop our relationships. And, um, Umi and I became really, you know, just, we were, we were inseparable from that moment on. And we started talking about things that we wanted to do and our, our love and admiration of art and culture and like the ways that it's been used to help elevate our people and just, um, hypothetically, you know, we were thinking about what the future could be and what it could hold. And a few months later, we, I, we came back to the States and started to, to kind of plan living together and, um, really making a reality out of some of these ideas and visions we had. And then when we were looking for a place, we, we, we found that we had a place with an extra room and extra space. And obviously, um, growing up in, in communities where often, you don't have a lot of space. It was very powerful to be able to have space. And we said, well, what are we going to be able to do with this space? Um, knowing that we have so much of our community members who are so talented and like have been coming to the house and have been sharing their, their, their stories, their art, their culture, their, we've had jam sessions we were having at the house. And um, it just became something that we knew we wanted to keep fostering to help like strengthen the community and, and help have some sort of, some sort of outlet for, for one another. And we were like, let's do a studio, you know, can, let's make one of the rooms into a studio. Um, and so we, you know, long story short, we fundraised and, um, organized with our community to help make the, get the funds to make the studio and buy the equipment and set it up. And now it's a reality. And they, we've been teaching workshops there. We've been, um, hosting conversations. We've been, um, doing recording sessions and podcasts and we do an open house every other month or so. And people from all over, um, South Florida come and share their, their art and their, um, different stories and music and musical talents and gifts. And it's kind of, it's become sort of a church, uh, uh in some ways. Um, but some, some sort of, place that we can, we can rest our heads and, and also love on one another and encourage one another and be fed, uh, in more ways than just, you know, physically fed. Um, if that makes sense. That does. Um, and, 
actually, I want you to talk a little bit more about um, your Dream Defenders delegation to Palestine and which moments in particular, which landscapes, which interactions uh, struck you the most when you were there and, and how did you bring back, uh, what did you bring back from Palestine as a writer and, and as someone who could um, you know, give that a platform in your, in your cultural space there? There's a lot that we, that we broke, brought back and I think um, that was exchanged. I'm, I'm still processing that trip. And I think we, you know, we're still learning how to, to be, um, better advocates of, of solidarity work and, and delegations. Um, but particularly in that delegation, we just, you know, we sat with people and we, we ate and we discussed and we, um, we heard and we listened and we observed and we walked and we shared, you know, meals with one another and in, in sort of the kind of quote unquote mundane, like life things that that people do and engage with. I think you, you learn, you know, the complexity of someone's humanity and like how they, how they live and how they see the world and their perspective. And I feel like for us, there was a lot to be learned, um, when so much of what we hear of Palestine is through the filter of the media and, um, you know, and often Zionist propaganda. And so I think there is, um, an intentional effort to show or to display a level of like fear around even what's going on in Palestine, how do you, uh, and how you engage with Palestinians. And so I think like just being able to sit down and break bread with people was its own radical act of like love and, 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 and learning, you know? And so like, um, hearing for, for our, for ourselves, what some of the artists were, were working on and going into the Deheshe refugee camps and meeting with campus for camps and meeting with, um, the, these girls from Shuruk who are, is, which is a organization that's in, um, the Deheshe refugee camp that works with, with young, young people and hip hop and, um, music and poetry, et cetera. And kind of seeing how this art form that, we take for granted often in the States, I feel, um, is still being used as a radical tool, uh, for liberation. And it's still being, um, taught with that purpose and that intention. And I think that that's something that humbled all of us and, and we were inspired by, um, but then also to learn the ways that they have, you know, um, culturally like taken in and improved or, um, remixed a lot of the things that we know hip hop to be, et cetera. You know, like it's just, that was just something that really stood out for me. And we still, you know, stay in conversation with some of the, the young women that um, we met through that organization and learning a lot about other artists that we were able to meet with who were just like, yeah, like Palestinian existence is resistance. And so therefore nothing we create is without intention or is without like understanding of that, you know, um, art is political and that's just what it is, you know? And so kind of learning that perspective and like, you know, that, you know what I mean? That's usually a nice, uh, statement or phrase we make, but like really seeing the practical ways that artists are trying to really like shift the narrative, um, of their experience is, was something that I think we all gained from, we all learned from. And then 
wanting to make sure that we were able to, to help, um, you know, make those connections between what's going on in Palestine, what's happening here in the States and the ways that people are silenced and, and why they're silenced and the ways that people are, you know, um, challenged with their language and how language is such a, it is such a liberatory thing that if people don't have access to it and don't have the ability to articulate their truth, then oftentimes someone else is telling the truth for them, you know, or about them, (laughs) which usually ends up being a lie. So I think we learned a lot about, um, so many different facets of Palestinian life and like just existence and, how every day is an act of resistance every day that a person chooses to to live and breathe and and love one another in and of itself um you know as a statement you know and so um yeah i think that that's that that's one of or several things that we were able to come away with and we've been trying to um be more intentional about the delegations and like what we what the exchange will be and what what comes out of those delegations. We were able to bring, um, uh, with, with the help of IMEU, we were able to bring three of those girls to the States and they got to see from the Shoruka Deheshe refugee camp, um, see the work that they're doing. But they also got to come here and perform and learn about hip hop in New York and see, you know, the cultural elements that, that had, that helped to birth hip hop. And, um, I think it was able, it was really, it was, it was powerful for me to, to be able to, to really do that exchange, not just to go there and explore and learn from, from them, but also for them to come here and explore and learn from us. And just, um, it was, it was an honor to share those things. So I think we're, we're still living with all the, you know, all the beautiful things that have come out of that trip, um, and still trying to create out of that as well. That's the voice of Aja Monet here with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Um, Aja, let's talk a little bit about your book. My mother was a freedom fighter. Um, give us a sense of, of your process in writing and and how, you know, it, thematically, um, how something like your experience in Palestine has been woven throughout your work, as well as, um, you know, just your, your life experiences here in the U.S. Well, the, the poems that are in the book are from a series of different moments in my life. And so there it's a collection of just my journey um, as a woman of color. And what I think I've learned, what, what I was able to really, you know, take away with me from, from Palestine and not just Palestine, but I think most of many of my travels is that I think, you know, society is often ruled by the narrative of from the it's it's from the male perspective that's the dominant perspective that we hear and oftentimes women are you know the the treated the lowest of low you know and and, in in all societies it's often that the case um and so i think part of for me was you know how do we talk or how do i at least start to address that no matter where i've gone i've seen that women and the love and the care that women give and the nurturing that women give is a part of um, a method that we just don't, we don't really uh, celebrate often. And, and we celebrate it in a very romantic sense, like, oh yeah, mothers, they, they create the world and they, they, you know, 
thank my mom. I wouldn't be out here without her, you know, but actually what do we do as a society to support mothers and to support the role that women play in nurturing the future? Um, and how do we, and how do we hinder that as well? And something that was powerful for me was, you know, everywhere we went, even in Palestine, I think the the poem that you mentioned that you wanted me to read the giving tree, it ends with this woman who's giving, you know, um, in the midst of having gone through so much suffering and still is giving, still loves and still is kind and still thinks the best of people and, you know, tries to, yes, yes, is, is, has, has her own level of, of anger and frustration and resistance in response to the state violence of, of the state of Israel, but, and still, um, she welcomed us in her home with a sense of love and care. And I think that that is what, that is what we should be working towards celebrating more, you know? Um, and so the, the poems kind of all in some way, shape or form, it's a journey of me trying to process how can I, how can I get to the place of being more tender or more, care more careful or more concerned with the softness of self you know um when often the narrative of resistance is is a very volatile like image right it's a very like violent image that we see you know it's the fist and the gun and the um the marching and like all those things but we don't pay attention to the intimate interpersonal things that help foster societies you know um, and I, I, I would argue maybe that's why we are where we are, is because we haven't spent enough time um, nurturing one another and seeing the value in that. Um, and so I think the poems kind of all touch on different things, but they that's the core theme, I think, in some, to, some, to some extent. The beginning of the book starts with um, inner city chants, which is kind of literal and figurative in a sense that, you know, these are the, the poems that are more personal and more of what I, my upbringing and, and growing up in the city and the things I experienced with my mom or my grandparents and, and the stories that we kind of told ourselves. Um, and then the, the, the second section is witnessing, which is more about, you know, all the things I've kind of, as I, I as I became of age and how, as I start to be, develop myself as a woman, the things that you witness that are that go wrong in the world or that seem sort of like an injustice and you kind of feel helpless or powerless. And so what do you do if only to write a poem about it, right? What can I do in response to those things? Um, and then the third section is more about, it's, it's called dressing a wound. And that's, that's, that's actually what it is or undressing a wound. It's all the things that I've, I've either felt wounded by and the ways in which I feel love or, or, care has helped to heal those wounds um, and the fight with love or the struggle to love has, has helped me understand what healing really is. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I think that that's kind of the gist of the storyline of, of the, of the poems, but they each stand on their own and in some way are a collection of, of this journey to, to womanhood that I've explored. Well, yes, I would love, uh, we would love for you to read um, The Giving Tree, which is on page 80 of your book, My Mother Was a Freedom Fighter. Okay. The Giving Tree. 
after D.D. Palestine. At the core of suffering, there is always a door, a wall. The knob shouting, they came in violently. Before the sun rose, there was an Israeli flag posted outside. Beit Hanina, Silwan, Shikshra. They came in violently for her home, her dignity, or both. Veins on a grandmother's wrist, pleading over a stove that fed the faces around it. Rusted faucets cleansing tired hands and rinsing cauliflower, potatoes, carrots. Picture frames of memory smiling back to her, knocked down. Doors arrest the body, walls are everywhere. If her wrinkles could speak, they'd say, is there a country where humans will find refuge? Her dimple would follow, here is my grandson, Muhammad, a poet. Please bring him. There is a killing all around, blood thirsts the ground, land littered by weeping olives. A boy in Galilee demonstrates, runs. As soldiers chase after, they strike a seal with the base of a rifle. He trips and falls, a seed of peace, face down in an olive grove. They shoot him execution style. His parents cannot rid the image of when he first discovered his toes out of their bodies. The baby they brought home together now, a young man, feet fumbling out of the rubble. Witness a child die and quickly descend into a realm of demons. Witness your child die and you become the demon, hurled to the earth, manacled everlasting to who you are after. They came in violently. Every Sunday is bloody. Every mouth is a house of prayer. They came in violently. Every hand is a God who heals or hurts, heals and hurts. 29 foreheads kneeled to worship the ground and never rose again. There was no flag, no supper. 125 open wounds wail, the last fast, dawn to sunset, an offering. What sort of God murders during invocation in their own home? What God murders at all? Tongues torn from praise, mourn. We cried loudly for who we were before, knowing we could not unknow what was felt. We listened loudly, still violently. Our laughter startled their grimaces. We came with our joy, our heartache, our pain. We shoved through checkpoints with our passports, our music, our customs, our beliefs, our faith, our protest, our song, our artists, our activists, our dreams. In Hebron, a web of my wired Mesh flickered above us, shards of bottled threat and scraps of garbage thrown by settlers. We were welcomed by Um Yassin for a meal of Makluba. They came in violently, she said, while placing a pile of plates and utensils on the table. Even a fetus is not protected. Tear gas thrown in her courtyard, soldiers stomped down the door. She was brought to the hospital. Its heart, its heart stopped beating, she said. She served us olives she stole from her own trees, and we huddled in the bone-clinging cold, witnessing the want to belong, flung foreign through a door. They came in violently, she said. We came in violently, displaced Black and American still. Still, she fed us. That's Aja Monet reading from My Mother Was a Freedom Fighter. Aja, thank you. Um, how can people learn more, more about your work and, and pick up your book? Um, well, there is, seeing that the interwebs is the thing these days, there's a website. <laughs> it's Aja, A-J-A, Monet, M-O-N-E-T, dot com. 
Um, I'm on Twitter and social media and all those things. And you can get the book at haymarketbooks.com um, or I think it'll work. And yeah, and it's also available on Amazon. I think it's available in some select stores and books, bookstores, et cetera. Um, but yeah. Ajamone, thank you so much for your work, for all, of, for all you do, and uh, for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Oh, thank you, Nora. I appreciate it. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.